I just really felt there was a moment during our, our musical worship where the, the Holy Spirit came into the house and just did, uh, just came into the house with a profound sense of, of mercy and forgiveness. And I know that some of you felt that as well. And the way it felt to me on the inside was that the Lord was just, just calming the fight within, was the phrase that, that I heard. And, and I know that some of us have walked in this morning, uh, maybe even without realizing it at first, that just, there's just so much fighting on the inside. And I just bless you with a word of peace this morning, like Jesus calming the raging sea in that story in the Gospels, that... Um, The life of the kingdom involves a lot of fighting against the spirit of the world for the sake of love. But life in the kingdom should not involve a lot of fighting within. Uh, we should carry peace within ourselves. So in Jesus' name, be at peace. I pray, Father, that you would perfect your peace in our hearts and minds. And that where there is dissonance and tension and struggle and accusation and shame, that you would just bring strength and love and relaxation this morning in Jesus' name. All right, roll your shoulders. Here's your warm-up question this morning. What's something important that you don't know? Something important that you don't know. You know, so, so to answer this question well, you'll have to know that you don't know it, right? But tell me something that you don't know, something that you think is worth knowing, but which you, you, you don't know. Stephen hasn't already. How long you have to live. Excellent, excellent response. You don't know how long you had. I mean, depending on your diet, you don't really know. You don't really know. Depends how much Coca-Cola we drink. Yeah, you don't know. You don't know. And, and, and Stephen's a cardiologist, so, so listen to him on this. Excellent. Uh, anybody else have a good answer? Politics, you don't know politics, meaning you have no idea how they work or what's going to happen with them. Good word. Good word. Something you don't know. It's important. I'm sorry, say that again. How, how, how to navigate with a sextant. Yeah, which is like, it's, it's, a, it's a sun sighting, uh, yeah. I mean, how many of you know how to navigate with the sextant? That's a great answer then, isn't it? It's something that collectively we don't know very well. Which, for which if you're sailing on the ocean or walking across a desert, that's a really important skill. It has to do with sighting, sighting the sun and relative to the horizon. Yeah, Ryan. Now, Ryan's a vice principal at a school, so he knows almost everything. But what, what don't you know, Ryan? How, how to calculate withholding. Uh, it's, it's tax season, and uh, yeah, who knows what the tax code is? Who knows? Nobody knows. TurboTax Turbo knows. I'm not confident of how gravity works. Yeah, how gravity works. Physicists out there, we actually don't know how gravity works. We, we, have, we have no idea, uh, which, is, which is a bummer because it's, it's everywhere. Last one, yeah. If I'm making an impact on anyone, which is a great response, because how do you actually measure that? 
you know, is it a lasting and fruitful impact? I mean, you can make an impact on someone. Ben made an impact on a baby recently. <laughs> but, you know, is it lasting and fruitful is the question. You know, is my life purposeful? Is it filled with the things that, I mean, it's a great, that's a, that's a great response. Uh, what's the proper response to not knowing important things like that? Figure it out. Yeah, I mean, you, you, go, you go seeking after the answer. You go, you go seeking after the truth of the thing. And, and I think that, I mean, there's just, there's just hardly anything more fundamental to humanity, uh, to, to personhood, than the capacity for us to figure out truth. I, I think there's, there's, there's hardly anything more humanizing than that. There, there's, there's nothing that, that, that fills us out as persons more than a quest for truth about things that, that we ought to know uh, the, the truth uh, about. Um, now, how, how do you seek after truth? And I think generally, uh, you know, there, there, there are two broad paths that, that you know, a modern person uh, would say, like, you seek after truth. Well, you, think, you seek after truth with faith, for one thing. Uh, you assume that the faith, that you assume with faith <laughs> that the truth is out there, um, that, that there are things that are trustable, if not entirely knowable. They exist even if we cannot understand them fully, and you can trust them. And in the trusting of them, you come to know them. When you rely on something over time, through challenges, again and again, well, by trusting it, you come to experience that it is there, right? And that's how you know truth through faith. And then there's another way uh, to seek after truth, which is what we would call today science, right? I mean, you investigate and you find evidence. You think really, really clearly and really methodically and you try to prove things uh, through measurable evidence as best you can. Experience is a sort of evidence. I think there's not really a great deal of, of difference between faith and science in some respect. But what we call evidence is usually material and, and measurable. You know, faith, faith or, or science um, or both. And I'm a big advocate of, of both. I don't think faith and science are oppositional at all. And so I really, I really distrust this pulse that's out there in culture that says, well, you know, science is counter to faith and actually we've, we've progressed scientifically uh, in society such that, that faith, religion, believing in God and such is now outdated and, and you know, it's, it's passe, it's, it's over. Uh, we've determined that it no longer has any value or explanatory power and it's not trustable and, and I, I just think that is the very height of nonsense. And, and today I want to talk about, want to talk about culture and science and some untruths that are out there. Uh, we're in a sermon series on, on culture. Really what this sermon series is about is the way that there are forces out there in our culture that, that skew how people understand what truth is. And it sounds perverse, but I think there's, there's, a, there's an element in our culture 
there's an element in the culture of science that skews truth, which is, which is pitiful, you know, because science is, is a method for discovering truth. People aren't thinking clearly about science. They aren't thinking clearly about the relationship of science and faith and God and, and stuff like that. Now, if you've been hanging out here through this sermon series, I've made a big deal of this thing called deconstructionism, uh, which is kind of a fancy word, uh, but it describes a phenomenon that we see sometimes in cultures and societies, which, which is this. When a culture or when a society reaches a certain point of strength and dominance, it suddenly tries to deconstruct itself. It suddenly questions every pillar that has gotten it to where it is. It eats itself, or in biblical terms, it starts dishonoring its fathers and mothers. Um, and, you know, there are reasons in human nature uh, that we do that, but I've, I, I won't review, but I've, I've, I've gone to, to great pains in the sermon series just to sort of illustrate the... the the philosophy of deconstructionism at work, at work in our culture today, and unless you name it and look at it, maybe you don't realize what a huge effect it's having, and if, if you don't realize the huge effect that it's having, then you can get caught in its current, and it can take you to places that are very damaging, and that can skew your understanding of what is true, and God forbid, skew your ability to live out your faith. That's what I'm really worried about. And deconstructionism uses science. It uses science to deconstruct um, fundamental truths uh, in society. And it uses science to take control. That's what the spirit of deconstructionism uh, does. Uh, science has been used to attack, well, I'm just say it simplistically, science has been used to attack Christian belief uh, quite a bit, and, and even to define what Christian belief is, which I think is, is nonsense. Um, and there are some examples of that, all these debates about, well, how old is the earth, and does the Bible really say it? Science proves that the Bible is fictitious. I think that's nonsense. I'll say a bit about that in a second. Or, you know, uh, evolution proves that the Bible is, is fictitious. Therefore, science proves there is no God. I'll talk about each of those subjects in just a second. Um, but science, our deconstruction also uses science to give itself authority to recon reconstruct, to, to reshape and control uh, society. Deconstruction always passes itself off as enlightenment, as advanced thinking. Um, and since the dawn of the scientific age, deconstructionism has always passed itself off as scientific. Now, if you know anything about, oh, say, you know, 20th century history, uh, you know this is true. Uh, Marxism uh, was, uh, was peddled to the people as uh, socioeconomic science. It's like, look, I have studied capitalism, said Marx, and I have found that capitalism carries the seeds of its own destruction. These are how people interact. A study of history shows that it's all about class warfare, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What we need is for a certain class of people to assume complete control over the other classes and dictate to them what is true and to murder millions of people if necessary. And, and, and that was all scientific method, right? Uh, and 
you know, I've, I've talked about those sorts of social movements enough in this sermon series, but in the name of, of science, in the name of social science, you know, 100 million people were killed in, in Europe. Nazism, some of you might even be old enough to remember this, the, the Nazis uh, who were deconstructionists on steroids, um, they justified their myth of racial superiorities with science. You can Google this and see Nazi scientists measuring the skulls of, of German people versus measuring the skulls of darker-skinned racists and saying, ah, I can prove that Germans have a bigger brain. I mean, it, was all, it was all stupid. It was all nonsense. But they used it to, uh, to support the myth of the dominant Aryan race. And then they used science to justify uh, Socialism, I mean, Nazis were socialists, uh, national socialists, that's where the word Nazi comes from, uh, that what we really needed is for government to impose reality because people don't understand reality enough. So government needs to take control of everything, become a dictatorship. Pretty soon you have a Fuhrer and you have the extermination of six and a half million Jews and the deaths of tens of millions of people in, in World War II. Uh, even after World War II, uh, in this country, there was a strong move called eugenics. Do you guys know about eugenics? Really? Nobody knows about eugenics. These things get, one, these things get hushed up. Um, eugenics was the idea that the human race can perfect itself through selective breeding and through weeding out the undesirables through suppression of reproduction and forced sterilization and things like that. This sounds horrible, right? Uh, and, and it ensconced itself, it, it dug into our culture in deep ways, and we had, you know, eugenicist politicians, and this was a big deal in America in, in, in the mid-century. Um, and it was sort of this uh, social Darwinism, do you know that phrase? The idea that, that we needed to consciously perf uh, pursue the perfection of society and humanity. We couldn't let humans just take care of themselves or make their own choices. Somebody had to take control of human relationships. Somebody in authority had to define what was right, what is true, what is, what is wrong and, and not allowable. And eugenics was just sort of a, it, it, it's a spiritual thing, right? It's like hum, humanity needs to be suppressed and controlled. Um, when I say it's a spiritual thing, I mean there's a spirit of it that manifests itself in all sorts of different ways. Marxism, Nazism, eugenics. Uh, eugenics was a big part of uh, the, the birth control movement and the abortion movement in, in America. Uh, these two words, I quote, these two words, birth control, sum up our whole philosophy. It means the release and cultiv cultivation of the better elements in our society and the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stock, those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Through birth control and abortion, we're going to weed out the inferior breeding stock in America, and we're going to get a, a better society. Uh, that was a quote from a woman named Margaret Sanger. Um, some of you may know she was the founder of Planned Parenthood. That's where Planned Parenthood got its start, sadly. Um, today, Planned Parenthood gets $500 million a year from the federal government, although they have changed their 
their philosophy, at least. Now it's women's, women's health, uh, which, is, which is a lot better. But, you know, there's, there's this spirit of taking control that evolves and that remarkets and repackages itself uh, over time. Science is used for the authority to take control. And that is the thing uh, that I think is, is, that's the most dangerous thing that happens when the spirit of science gets twisted. Now, a few things about that. I'll, I'll say, I'll say a, f- a few words about how science doesn't run counter to Christian faith, and in particular, um, you know, creationism and evolution and stuff like that. Uh, and then I'll make a few remarks about how science gets really biased in our culture. But I want you to understand that the point is um, that none of us need to be bashful about what is true. None of us need to quit seeking or to think that there's some science out there that disconfirms what we trust to be true by faith. So that, that's where I'm going with this. Uh, so I want us to transcend our culture in, in, this, in this fashion. Okay, science and faith. I think science does not run counter to Christian faith. I think, in fact, that the recent developments in what you might call big science, like physics and cosmology and stuff like that, strengthen the Christian worldview immensely. Uh, first of all, I think it's important to understand that, that a lot of the, 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 the fathers and, and indeed mothers of the scientific movement were themselves God-fearing uh, Christians. Copernicus, Francis Bacon, who is the father of the scientific method, Johann Kepler, uh, Galileo, uh, the guy that was in prison for saying that you know, the sun was at the center of, of, uh, of our solar system, now that we call it a solar system, um, was, was a Christian. Uh, Descartes, Pascal, Newton... Michael Faraday, Faraday, Gregor Mandel, who was the father of genetics, uh, Louis Pasteur, Max Planck, who was the father of quantum physics, Freeman Dyson, Francis Collins, who was, who was one of the leading decoders of the human genome. These guys are all Christians. So they're all Christians. Even Darwin started out as a Christian, and he only uh, abandoned his faith after receiving a lot of criticism that said his theory of evolution was, was, uh, was not Christian. He said, well, you know, it's true, so I guess I'm not a Christian. <laughs> uh, and that's why, that's why he, he walked away. Here's what we have to believe uh, as Christians. Genesis 1.1, uh, short scripture in your program, but I bet you already know the scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think that's about as scientific as, as the Bible gets, uh, you know, that, that this was all created. What we need to believe in is a creator, God creator God. Now, for a long time, uh, quote-unquote scientific critics thought that Christians were stupid for arguing that the universe was created, because for years and years and years, the consensus was that, that the universe was static, that it just was. It had no beginning, it had no end, it had always been. And, and the discovery, uh, the proof uh, that the universe was created only happened really in the early 20th century. Uh, and it was, it was probably like, probably the biggest scientific discovery ever. It's like, wow, the universe was actually created. And a lot of people had to re-engineer their understanding of how the universe worked at that point. But here's the fundamental fact of, of cosmological physics. The universe had a beginning. The universe had a beginning. 
and nobody can explain it. Nobody can explain how it happened. Christian philosophers have been explaining it from like the 15th century, you know. Uh, philosophers like Thomas Aquinas have been saying, well, look, uh, I assume the universe had a beginning, and how can something that had a beginning begin except that there is a being outside of the universe to kickstart it? You know, if you see a ball in motion, it means that somebody kicked the ball or threw the ball or something like that. So if the universe had a beginning, which is to say if it moved from point A to point B, there must be a prime mover. And Christians have been arguing that for centuries, even before the scientific age. It turns out they were right. And, and physicists still to this day cannot explain what kick-started the universe. All of cosmological physics uh, is about what happened after the first second, you know, or the, or the first one-tenth of one second. We, we can't say what started things. Um, and, and I just find that to be tremendously comforting. We should, we should fist pump on that one. The universe had a beginning. We've proven it. Do you have to believe uh, that the earth is 6,000 years old uh, to be a Christian? Uh, because there's a lot of science out there that shows that it's, it's, it's pretty much not. Uh, I don't mean to step on any toes. I don't know how you read scripture or what you believe, but here's my take on it. Uh, I, think, I, think, I think the universe is, is a lot older than 6,000 years, and I think the earth is a lot older than 6,000 years. And if it's not older than 6,000 years, then God has gone to incredible lengths to trick us. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, that's, that's my take. And I don't think the Bible says that the, the earth is only 6,000 years old. That's called young earth creationism. Have you guys heard, you heard this, right? And, you know, again, I don't mean to step on any toes, but it's based on a literal reading of Genesis chapter 1 and uh, a tracing of genealogies uh, given in the Bible. The literal reading of Genesis chapter 1 is like, you know, the seven days of creation, uh, well, the literal reading says that, well, they were literally seven 24-hour days. Uh, and therefore, all the earth sprung into being as it is. There was no evolution. There was no development. And it all happened in, in a literal 24-hour days. Uh, you know, since, since the beginning of, of that theory, that interpretation, even Christians have been saying, wait a minute, there are problems with that. For instance, the sun was not created till the fourth day, so how could there be a 24-hour revolution around, you know, uh, revolution of, of the earth without a sun. You know, how, how, how would you trace the day? You know, stuff, stuff like that. Um, and the word, uh, the word for day used in Genesis 1, which is poetry, it's written in verse, is, is yom. Uh, and uh, it's translated day in most of our translations of Genesis chapter 1. But elsewhere in the Bible, it's translated like time or, or age or generation, or something like that. Yom is one of those words that doesn't necessarily mean what the translation say, says that it means, so it's hard to consider a, the first yom as a 24-hour day, because it just could mean like, well, in the first age, or in the first time, you know, in the, in the, day, of, in the day of David, or in the reign of David, same word, yom. Um, so, etc. But But since... Uh, since, uh, well, it's not really true, but this started in, in around 1650 uh, with, uh, with an accounting by this guy named 
Usher, he was the Bishop of Ireland, and what he did is he went to scripture and he counted up all those genealogies, you know, Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain and eventually Seth and yada, 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 and then, you know, Methuselah and down through Noah and stuff like that, and he counted up the ages of all of those guys all the way down to the genealogy of Jesus, and so he, he said, well, look, the story is 6,000 years old, so the earth must be 6,000 years old. Actually, his understanding of the genealogies were themselves skewed because in the Bible, genealogies are usually genealogies of, of kings. They're called regnal genealogies, which means you only list the famous guys. And in between the famous guys, there can be any number of generations, um, right? So it, even in Genesis, the word hero is sometimes used. Uh, are the great men of the age. You're only listing like the most famous people of the passing centuries. Uh, so even, even that method is sort of biblically uh, inaccurate. But people have made a big deal about this. There was a famous trial uh, about it at one point in, in American history. I don't, I don't think a Bible-believing Christian needs to believe that the earth is 6,000 years old. And surveys show indeed that most Christians in America do not. Um, but we're told that science disproves uh, the Bible. You understand the dissonance? I think we can relax on, on that score. I look at what has happened in physics and I think, wow, this totally proves God. Um, my favorite example of this is the creation theory of a man named Stephen Hawking. Have you heard of him? He just died recently. Uh, very famous uh, Cambridge mathematician and physicist. Uh, who, before he died, became very outspokenly uh, atheist. He said, heaven is a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the dark. Um, he became famous for promoting a theory of the creation of the universe um, that had to do uh, with uh, the presence of something called singularities. Now in physics, the word singularity means something that happens only once. Um, so his theory was that, well, if on the timeline of the creation of the universe, and he had a very sophisticated description of what that timeline was, um, I can explain everything uh, assuming that there was a singularity, that a singularity happened. That something happened that defies the laws of physics, um, but it only happened once, only a single instance of it. Now think about that for a second. I can explain the universe provided I assume only one miracle. And I've actually had debates with, with physicists at elite universities, like define singularity for me, I'll say. And they're like, well, you know, something uh, that happens only once in the story of the universe that defies physical laws as we understand them. They usually say, as we understand them. And I, and I, and I say, you're talking about a miracle. No, 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 it's not a miracle. It's a singularity. <laughs> you're talking about a miracle. Something that defies, you know, uh, the world as we know it. Uh, eventually, uh, Hawking himself became rather embarrassed about this and, and backpedaled and tried to come up with a theory uh, that didn't involve any singularities. It involved five-dimensional space and a dot of infinite 
infinitely small uh, dimension, but unless you're geeky, that stuff is, is really, really boring. In the, in the end of the 19th century, uh, scientists were bragging that they had discovered everything there was to discover about the universe, that they were very, very close to explaining everything at the end of the 19th century. So in the late 1800s, they were saying that. Uh, here's a quote from a recent, uh, a recent quote uh, from one of the leading physicists at, at CERN, the huge particle collider in Switzerland. The next few years may well tell us whether we'll be able to continue to increase our understanding of nature or whether maybe for the first time in the history of science we could be facing questions that we cannot answer. Now what scientists are saying is that we have proven that the universe is so weird that we're beginning to think that we may never be able to explain it without recourse to singularities, of course. Michio Kaku is one of the, the world's uh, famous, most famous physicists, uh, made headlines recently uh, by declaring, after, after reviewing recent particle physics, that there is no question that there is a God. He got a lot of flack for that, and has had to re-explain himself several times on YouTube. Uh, but two really big uh, mysteries in physics, and then I'll wrap this thing up. Uh, is that, uh, you've heard of the Higgs boson particle, right? So it's called the God particle, which is the best marketing a subatomic particle has ever gotten. Uh, the, when they discovered it, uh, what it does is it explains why things in the universe have mass, why they have substance. So there's a magic particle that gives substance to things. I know that sounds really crazy, but, uh, and they, they think they discovered the particle using this, this atomic collider um, and, and they were very excited about that and then they started to measure the effect of the particle and the problem is that the effect that the particle has on other particles is much, much tinier than they thought it should be so it doesn't explain why the universe has substance which is to say it doesn't explain why things exist uh, and that has really mystified science another problem is that um, You've heard of dark energy in the universe. There's part of the universe that we know is there, but which we cannot see or we cannot measure, and that's driving people nuts. Uh, and so what they figure is that the part of the universe that we cannot see has to equal the part of the universe that we can see, and that's why the universe doesn't blow apart, because there's a big question, why doesn't the universe blow apart? And, and then what they did is they essentially calculated the amount of the universe that we can't see, this dark energy, and it should be 10,120 times stronger than it is. Uh, so this theory does not explain why the universe doesn't just uh, disintegrate. And that might not keep you awake at night, but what, what's going on in, in the big science community is that people are realizing that the universe is just weird. It's just really, really wacky and inexplicable in a, in a truly fundamental sense. What we know now, due to our scientific tradition, is now more than ever, we know that we don't know. That's the gift that science has given us. And that's the question that I open with today. You know, now we know. We know that we don't know. And so at the end of science, you know, maybe we should try a little faith too. My favorite quote from Einstein is, uh, without religion, science is lame.
hand. Like you've, you've got to have room uh, to trust things uh, that you cannot uh, prove. Um, you know, because, because of time, I'm just going to leave it there and I'm not going to talk about evolution and stuff like that. If you don't mind, you're probably not as geeky as I am anyway. Um, but, but my point in you know, illustrating uh, this stuff today is, is that the takeaway from our centuries-old tradition of tradition should be humility. It should leave us humans feeling humble because not only do we know more than we've ever known, we actually know more than ever how much there is that we don't know. And that makes me worship. You know? You know? Um, it gives a place for my heart to live. And we don't need to be bashful uh, about it uh, as Christians. Now, um, if, let me put this succinctly and quickly, there is a huge bias in culture as to how truth-seeking takes place. I'll just give you uh, one illustration. Um, in, in American universities, you know, in, in, in America, there's a political divide between liberals and conservative, or people on the left, or people on the right, or you know, certain sorts of Democrats and certain sorts of Republicans. Have you, have you noticed this division at all? All right. So the, the most notable thing about this division, uh, and, and it really speaks of different philosophies, right? Uh, the most notable thing about it is that in America, it's a 50-50 split, right? We, we see this every presidential election, that Donald Trump can be president even though, arguably, he had fewer voters among in the popular vote than Hillary Clinton did. It's that close. It's 50-50. In American universities, uh, the most reliable estimates uh, estimate that there are 16 liberals to every one conservative among faculty members. That's, that's uh, a restrictive estimate. I read some estimates that say 30 to 1. So in American universities, uh, the political skew is incredibly, incredibly to one side. And I'm not, you know, defending liberals or defending conservatives here. I'm just saying they are extraordinarily biased places. In sociology, or, or in sociology which is the science that tells us what society is like, uh, the ratio is 44 to 1. So the people describing society to you are people that have only one certain philosophy. Um, now the reason I'm, I'm quoting uh, stats like that is because universities, the word university literally means one truth. They are places that teach us what truth is. Universities and colleges and a higher proportion of Americans have gone there, going there now than have ever gone there. But you're not, you're, you're getting something that is not probably not objective, right? Because the culture is self-editing. You understand what I'm saying? Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say oh, all liberals are bad, all conservatives are good, and I'm not saying the other either, that all conservatives are bad and liberals are good. I'm just saying bias. There is an enormous bias. In sociology in America, according to one study, 25% of professors are Marxist. 
which, which I mean, Marxists don't exist anywhere else, you know? It's so, in, it's incredibly skewed. And the only reason I'm saying that, particularly to your young people, is that it's important to think for yourself about things. When somebody gives you a scientific fact, it's important for you to think it through. Uh, I read this recently in Social Scientist, uh, and we're going to talk about uh, sexuality and science and stuff like that next week because that's a big moral issue in America. 70% of social scientists think that the behavior of homosexuals is biologically determined. In other words, you are, you ha your genes make you behave that way. So 70% 70, 70 believe that homosexuality is biologically determined. Only 43% of the same sample think that the differences in behaviors between the genders is biological. You understand what that's saying? So men and women behave differently, yes or no? Yeah, I mean, you know, on, on average, right? On average, but you know, there are extreme examples anyway. So social scientists in the American Academy say that, well, that's not really a biological difference. You know, 67% say, well, there's really no biological difference between men and women in that way. No biological difference between men and women. Uh, and 70% are a much, much larger uh, portion of those scientists say, however, um, you know, in the 1.3% of the population that is homosexual, that's entirely bi biologically given. Which is, which is odd, right? And I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to cast out one argument or the other right now. I'm just saying that what is presented to us as scientific fact often has a lot of culture in it, right? A lot of bias. I don't want anybody to be discouraged by what you read in the headlines. What I want you to be is truthful. What I think Christians should be is I think they should be the most truthful people on earth. It starts with being unafraid to speak the truth about anything. About yourself, we call that confession. Uh, about the message that you carry to the world, we call that preaching or sharing. And about what you think is true, about what you've discovered scientifically. It's okay to question and to be an individual and to not be controlled uh, by the force of deconstruction that's out there in society. I want you to be brave where the truth is concerned. Now, you're not, you're not as geeky as I am. You know, you don't, you don't read academic journals, maybe. Does anybody read academic journals? Yes! There are four of us that read academic journals. Does anybody outside of university still read academic journals? Two of us, yes. Um, and I'm not encouraging you to do that. You don't need to understand quantum physics. You don't, I mean, that, that, that's, all, that's all beside the point for most of us on a daily basis. But it influences us. There, there's an element in culture that influences us. Uh, people uh, slump around thinking that science has disproven what we hold to be true or morally correct, and it hasn't. It hasn't, and just a little bit of poking will show it. 
And I know a lot of us are sort of suffering under the oppression of thinking that, that we've become outdated people, but we haven't. We've been on the cutting edge of truth for a long, long time. And I need you to be brave about that. And in that spirit, I need you to be brave about the truth about yourself too. You know, if you're not living according to the truth that you actually believe. Um, Jesus has a response to that and we felt it during worship. It's, it's forgiveness, it's grace, and it's love. It's generosity. It's, you don't have to have all of the right answers or right behaviors. You just need to be headed in the right direction. You understand what I'm saying? And it's the spirit of truth that, that I'm preaching. It's the spirit of truth that I want you all to carry away. It's the spirit of truth in which I want you to live. It's truth that sets you free. And I want to embrace it uh, with all of my heart.